Welcome everybody to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 259 recap on Twitter Spaces. It's Thursday, July 13th, and we'll be talking about LN spec changes, new developments in policy in our transaction relay and mempool series, a PR review club about peer-to-peer, and then we have a, a release and a just one PR to cover this week. By way of introductions, I'm Mike Schmidt, contributor at Bitcoin Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs on Bitcoin stuff. Gloria? Hi, I'm Gloria. I work at Brink on Bitcoin stuff. T-Best? Hi, I'm Bastian. I work at Async on Lightning stuff. Awesome. Well, Martin will be joining us shortly, and he can introduce himself before we talk about the PR Review Club segment. First item from the newsletter is LN specification cleanup proposed. And this is based on a mailing list post to the Lightning Dev mailing list from Rusty Russell and a PR as well, where he's proposing to remove some features that are no longer supported. Um, and in addition, assuming four other features are supported, Luckily, we have T-Bast here to talk about the specification cleanup proposal. Um, T-Bast, is this something that came out of the, the recent Lightning Summit, or is this something separate? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually both. It uh, prompted us to act. Uh, we were prompted to act during the summit. It's something we've always said that since the bold specifications are moving documents that keep getting things added and hopefully at some point removed so that we don't have too much all the legacy stuff that keeps hanging around. We've been very good at adding things, but we haven't been very good at removing things. So someone who comes in now and looks at the spec sees that there are a lot of features, a lot of places in the specification where we have a hard to pass if else statement. If you have that feature, you should do that. If you have that feature, you should do that. And it makes it really hard for newcomers who just want to see the latest state of Lightning and what is currently deployed on the network and how it works. It makes it harder for them to read the specification or even implement something and, or see what's happening. So we decided that everything that all implementations support and have supported for more than a year, we're just going to assume that those exist and we'll stop specifying different cases for when it's turned off. So that, that's what Rusty did here. He made a lot of features assumed, assumed that every node have to implement so that we don't have to handle the case where the remote does not implement that feature and we don't even have to specify what happens when someone does not support that feature. And in the long run, there are other things we want to clean up from the specification to make it smaller, easier to understand, and remove the need to know what happened in legacy channels for newcomers. So the, this is going to take a while, but it's a, it's an ongoing effort that we need to be better at. Is it correct to say that for these two unused features, that you're not necessarily moving removing functionality, but you're removing certain ways of implementing certain functionality? So for example, this looks like initial routing sync piece is replaced already by something that, that's been in the spec for a while called gossip queries, and similar for option anchor outputs, just op option anchors. It, 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 I, I just want to make sure people are clear that not necessarily removing mm, functionality, but removing ways of achieving certain functionality. Is that right to say? 
Yeah, it's a good way to 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 explain it. For example, initial routing sync is a very dumb way of bootstrapping a new node when you connect to someone. Initially, a long time ago, when you connected to someone and you were a completely new node, you would say initial routing sync to tell the other node to just dump all of the gossip data to you, and they would just uh, send a lot of things uh, directly to you. But that has been replaced with a slightly better mechanism called gossip queries that has been shipped three or four years ago by every implementation. So now we can just remove a very inefficient thing that we used before, since everybody supports the new thing that is more efficient. And for anchor outputs, the story is a bit different. When we first implemented anchor output, the first version of it actually had an issue, had, a, had an issue where someone could siphon off the fees of a HTLC transaction. So a small tweak on that anchor output mechanism was created that we called anchor output zero fee HTLC transactions, where the HTLC transactions pay zero fee and are signed with Sigash single, Sigash anyone can pay so that you can add fees later. So since we already had a version of anchor output that was specified, but was actually vulnerable to attacks, we, we kept it in the spec, but we always said, you probably never want to use that version. You always want to use the zero fee HTLC transaction version. So now we just removed the old version because it's insecure. There's no good reason to use it instead of the other one. And it was creating a lot of uh, confusion for people who were reading that spec. That makes sense. And then on the flip side here, when there's these four features that are assumed, I, I guess maybe a couple of questions that I'll bundle and you can take it however you'd like. What does it mean to assume a feature? And then the follow-up question would be um, based on Rusty's results of probing around the network. He, he mentioned that there are still some nodes that don't support some of those assumed features and what would happen Obviously, we want folks to upgrade their node to the latest software, but some of these folks haven't. What are the consequences to those nodes that don't upgrade and don't support those assumed features? So maybe two questions there. Yeah, so assumed features are really part of the minimal set of features you have to support to be a node in the network right now, which means that right now we are not going to actively disconnect you if you connect to us without those features. But in the, fut in the future, if you are a very old node that connects and does not support those features, we're just going to disconnect you from the start. So you, you won't even be able to join the network at all if you haven't implemented those features. And it's true that there are a few nodes out there that still don't have have not activated those features, but I'm not sure we really want to care about those people because it, that means they haven't upgraded in potentially three years. And if they haven't upgraded their implementation in three years, they have a lot of things to worry about because a, lo a lot of important bug fixes have been fixed. Some of them have, uh, have even been uh, uh, publicly announced and uh, those nodes are potentially could potentially be under attack and could easily lose all their funds if they don't do anything. So I suspect that all of these nodes are nodes that are just forgotten somewhere on a cloud or something like that, or someone doing some tests, but they it makes no sense to keep running those nodes without these new features. So I hope they just update or just start uh, getting dropped off the network. And we noted in the newsletter those four features and explained them in a bit more detail. And as you mentioned, they've been part of the specification for since 2019, 2018, 2017, and 2019. So yeah, I guess you're several years behind if you're still not supporting those pieces. 
Mer- yeah, and it was really and lightning lightning implementations before 2019 were quite reckless. There, a lot of things have been fixed since then. A lot of things have been improved. So if you're running software lightning software that is more than three or four years old, you're gonna have issues. So you really should update. Merch, did you have questions about these changes? Not necessarily. I think uh, there's a good overview of what Rusty exactly proposed in the newsletter. Um, all of these have been, well, they're really old changes. So I think we've covered them dozens of times. So, um, no. T-Bass, this is a little off topic, and I suspect that we'll be covering it in our monthly segment on changes to client and service software. But there was a recent announcement of a new version of Phoenix Wallet. And I suspect that we probably won't bother you with bringing you on when we cover that in the future. But I wanted to give you a chance to explain that release and any notable important features. Sure, thanks. So this is really a very big release. We've been working on some of the features for that release for a year or so. It's the main, when we initially launched uh, Phoenix, it was already quite a dramatic change compared to what other Lightning wallets were doing at the time because it was the first wallet that introduced dynamic liquidity management so that people did not have to care about their liquidity and could just get liquidity on the fly when they received payments. So it was a huge boost in, in user experience. But the issue with that is that when users end up with multiple channels on a mobile wallet, it creates a lot of issues because they, they don't really know how much they can receive because the amount that they can receive is theoretically the sum of the receiving capacity of each of the channels. But that only works if the sender is able to have that information and potentially split the HLC, the HLCs perfectly across all the channels, which is impractical because you cannot share all your channels in a Bolt 11 invoice and you definitely cannot share their, their balance in real time. So in practice, what happened is that people thought they were able to potentially receive, for example, 100,000 sats. They were asking someone to send them 100,000 sats but it actually could not be relayed entirely over Lightning. So it ended up creating a new channel to relay that amount. And it made the problem even worse because then the user has even one more channel. And having more channels also is an issue for the wallet provider because that means that you have more UTXOs that are used for only one user and all those channels can potentially force close at a later time at a very high fee rate and would incur a high cost for the wallet provider so it's really much better to have only one channel per user from a scalability point of view and that's something that's plaything which is a big spec uh, protocol change that has been discussed since 2018 uh, is is allowing us to finally do so we've been working on that for for a long time we now have something that is really ready. We're just testing it out right now in the during the beta to make sure that people don't find any unexpected issues. But we think it's really gonna help the UX and also help the pricing model to be much easier to understand for a user. So it's really it's really a huge a huge release. And the goal is that people won't actually really see that things have changed a lot under the hood, but actually they have and everything is more efficient and uh, and should cost less. 
Also, we previously had the swaps that we previously had in Phoenix were trusted. You would just pay us and then we would do the swap, which is definitely not something we wanted to keep on doing for long. Now that we have splicing, the swaps are really entirely controlled by the user. We have nothing, uh, we, we don't hold the funds at any time. So they are finally fully trustless, which is really a good thing. There are still a lot of other things we need to add in the next wave of features. But this is really a big, uh, a big improvement. So I hope people will trade out and people will be happy with the changes. But Tbas, I thought splicing wasn't active on Lightning yet. That, that, that's why it's interesting because in Phoenix, Phoenix gives us a nice test bed for things that we want to try out on, the, on a small part of the network since Phoenix only connects to our node and splicing is only a feature that is important for pairs of nodes. We, we activated it on our node, at least a prototype version of splicing that maybe is not the final spec version, but it's something that works and that we want to be able to try in the wild. Phoenix has the same code. So Phoenix and our node are able to negotiate splice transactions. And our goal is ideally to start um, testing cross-compat with, uh, with CLN as soon as possible. But for that, the first we, we still need to first finalize at least merge the dual funding specification that has some uh, protocol changes that are then reused for splicing. And the dual funding specification is still not fully implemented, at least not the latest version in Core Lightning. So we're still waiting for that to happen before we can start moving on to cross-compat tests for splicing. But I hope that we will get splicing merged and deployed on the network uh, with two implementations, at least by the end of this year, hopefully. Merch, do you have any questions or comments about Phoenix Wallet other than loving the fact that it minimizes the amount of UTXOs used? Um, I, I thought that it's super interesting that you're using the swap in potentium uh, idea or a variant of that. Uh, we covered that a while back and uh, had Zeman and I think Jesse on for that. Um, I was just wondering, so that would mean that you sort of stage the funds in a output that is controlled by the user but locked to the um, Lightning service provider and the user for some time. And then eventually it would go back to the user, but uh, it can be spliced into the UTXO. So is, is that sort of the same concept you're using or are you... Uh, or is it always locked to, to both of you because you expect that it'll, or is it locked to, to assign directly? No, it's, a, it's exactly what the swapping potential uh, proposal describes. So the funds are first sent to an address that has two script paths. One is a two of two multi-sig between the user and our node, and the other is a single sig from the user after a, de a relative delay. And the goal is that the, the issue we had, the reason we use that is that we want to make all channel operations be able to use zero cons because otherwise the user's balance really becomes a mess, especially when you start using splicing because you have a chain of commitment of funding of funding transactions and the user doesn't know what they can actually use if you're not using uh, zero conf here. So we need a safe way to use zero conf. And the issue is that whenever the user splices in, they are using one of their inputs and adding that input directly into the channel and we cannot trust them to not double spend. So that made one of the operations, the place in one, one that could not use zero conf, 
whereas all the other operations could use zero count that could potentially be stacked after uh, a splicing, which made the UX really horrible. So using something potential here is a way to decorrelate the confirmations count from the channel operation. You, you first send to the swapping potential address. It has nothing to do with your channel yet, and you wait for confirmations there. And once this is confirmed, then we can use we can splice those into the channel, and this can use zero conf because the user, the user cannot double spend it by himself. He would also need a uh, signature from the wallet provider from our node. So this makes sure that we can make all operations on the channel use zero conf, which makes it much easier to track, much easier to understand from a balance point of view for the user, and uh, and much safer. There's still the risk that we could double spend, but at least we could double spend our inputs. But in this zero comp scenario, the user is trusting us to not double spend anyway. That, that doesn't change the, the business model, the security model here. Right, cool. May I ask a pointy question too? Um, I was wondering if your channel balance is now all, or sorry, not just your channel balance, but basically your balance with Async is now always stored in a single UTXO. Uh, doesn't that have some sort of privacy implications? Right now it does, mostly, mostly also because we don't use Taproot yet. Once we start using Taproot, this will be better because all those places First of all, people will not see that this is a channel, and every splice, every, every time you splice, people shouldn't be able to tell which of the output is the remaining channel and which of the output was a, an outgoing payment. But right now, it's true that the on-chain privacy is not is not great. But on-chain pri privacy on Lightning is generally not great, and is only going to get better once we move to Taproot. Thanks. If you're curious about this technique that we're talking about here in Phoenix, there was a newsletter num number 233, where we talked with Z-Man and Jesse Posner about the swap in Potentium proposal. And I've linked to that in the Twitter spaces here. So you can go right to that segment of the newsletter or our discussion with them on the podcast. T-Best, any, any final words before we wrap up this section? Mm, no, nothing in particular. We had a great Lightning Summit uh, in New York a few weeks ago. We worked on many, yeah, we ironed out a lot of potential issues with all the big features that everyone is working on. So I think we're all set to deliver a lot of things this year around splicing, dual funding, Taproot, Bolt 12. So it's finally, it's finally time where a lot of those Big features we've been working on for years are going to start uh, being shipped. So it's going to be really exciting. Thank you for joining us. Of course, of all the newsletters that we have you on, uh, we have you on today in which there are no Lightning PRs. Sometimes we have 10 Lightning PRs. And it would be great to, to have you on help explain some of them. But we have one Bitcoin Core PR here today. So if you need to drop to work on other things, we understand. Thank you for your time. Do your best. No, I'll stay. This is going to be interesting. Thanks. Excellent. Moving on in the newsletter, we have our Waiting for Confirmation series, number nine, on policy proposals. Last week, we talked about second layer protocols interfacing with transaction relay policy and including examples of existing anchor output and child pays for parent carve-out techniques. And this week, we build on some of the drawbacks to those techniques and explore some in-progress efforts to address 
some of the limitations of those techniques and other limit limitations. We have Gloria and Merch, who are co-authors of this series. And so I guess I'll throw it out to either one of you. Um, what are the issues that we're referencing with these previous techniques and what sort of solutions are, are being worked on for the future? Yeah, so uh, the last post introduced the concept of pinning attacks um, as well as other issues and wanted to kind of give some hope in this post. Um, and we, so we talk about five different policy proposals and I was trying to kind of introduce them in a linear manner so that you can kind of see it from the point of view is like, oh, this like problem exists. Okay, we have this proposal to address it, but we still have these problems left. So this next proposal addresses some of them and then so on and so forth. And then so it goes from package relay to V3 and cluster um, and uh, until ephemeral anchors at the end, which kind of, I think, addresses most issues and, you know, enables cool things like Ellen symmetry. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we, we can start with kind of the anchor outputs model that we introduced in the post um, last week, um, where it still has a number of limitations. Let's say some are very annoying and then maybe some of them are just kind of cosmetic um so I, I think probably the worst one is that you end up overpaying on fees on commitment transactions for unilateral closes because you have to overestimate because if if it were to fall below the minimum fee rate then suddenly it's not going to get into any mempool and you won't be able to get it relayed regardless of the child that you put on there to see uh, to fee bump then you have funds tied up into your anchor outputs. You have to put some value on them to meet the dust threshold. Um, and then carve out is quite ugly from a like layer one perspective. And it only works with one extra descendant. So for example, if you wanted to guarantee that N parties of a you know, more than two party channel uh, in some hypothetical uh, contracting protocol, or let's just say a coin join, um, the carve out, which allows one extra descendant only kind of guarantees that there will be at least two people who can attach a child to one of the outputs of their shared transaction. So it doesn't quite solve the kind of general problem of, oh, we always want to make sure that any of the participants can fee bump their shared transaction. Um, and then kind of on the more cosmetic side, maybe, but Greg says that this is a, a composability issue is that you have to put the one block relative time lock on all of the non-anchor outputs um, to prevent them from being spent. Uh, it goes back to the descendant pinning um, problem. Um, and then so that brings us to package relay and package RBF, which solves, uh, from what I hear, so, some of the more painful ones, um, like <laughs> not being able to bump something below minimum fee rate. A mempool fee rate when congestion is higher. Um, and so hopefully that will save people money uh, since you won't have to overpay on 
on the commitment transactions in the future. And you can also get rid of the multiple anchor outputs. Uh, so, oh, I forgot to mention this. You need one anchor output per participant so that they can each spend it, right? Um, but if you have package RBF, for example, you just need one on each person's commitment transaction and they can just replace each other. So you don't need to ever bump the commitment transaction that somebody else um, broadcast. But of course, we still have uh, RBF pinning because we have these very kind of generous descendant limits in, in monthly policy where that kind of leaves room for someone to broadcast their commitment transaction and add a very large um, high fee but low fee rate um, child, which is not, you know, CPF, CPFPing anything, but it does add to the cost to replace that transaction. Um, and that variance is, is very, very high. So it could be, I don't know, let's say 90,000 virtual bytes. Um, and even at, you know, 10 sats per V byte, that's, that's quite a bit of money to, to potentially have to pay to replace that. Um, and so that's, that's quite annoying. And so this is combined with some just general RBF terribleness. Um, I I have a little paragraph. Uh, we wrote a little paragraph in there about the fact that replacements don't need to necessarily confirm faster. Like they have to have pay more fees, but they don't necessarily need to have a higher quote unquote mining score. So if you were to build a new block template, this replacement transaction could potentially come later than the original. Um, and this is a this is a pinning problem for anyone can pay transactions where you can imagine they're able to like malleate this transaction to essentially confirm slower um, by making it the descendant of a say huge low fee rate ancestor in the mempool. Um, so this kind of brings us to cluster mempool. This is where I might tag merchant because you did write this portion and yeah, um, because the problem with solving this is the fact that our ancestor descent limits, we've talked about this in multiple newsletters in the past couple months, um, just are way too permissive and it just makes it infeasible to assess the mining score of transactions in mempools. Um, and so, yeah, Merch, you have your hand up. Do you want to jump in and talk about cluster mempool? Sure. So cluster mempool is an idea on how we would differently structure the data in the mempool data structure for um, keeping track of what's up for the next block. The current proposal um, will keep uh, information on the entire ancestor set of each transaction. And uh, so A, that has a problem that we will never discover if there's multiple children that are all trying to bump the same ancestors uh, because uh, we would only pick the one that has the highest ancestor set fee rate out of those into the block first and then look at the other ones, which then surprisingly have great fee rates. Uh, but with cluster mempool, what we would do is we would rather keep track of all related transactions, anything that has uh, transitively a connection through child or parent relations would be part of the same uh, data that uh, is relevant for for transactions. And in these clusters, we would um, 
linearize uh, the order, we would look at a cluster as a set of transactions and say, okay, if I just had this cluster and built a block from it, in which order would I pick all of these transactions? And we make that the order of the cluster. And then we can group those transactions inside of the cluster into chunks that are essentially packages with the best possible fee rate that is available in the um, by by grouping more. So, for example, if you had a cluster that is just a child and a parent, and the child has a higher fee rate, you would discover that you first have to pick the parent, of course. So it's in the linear order in front of the child. But the child has a higher fee rate, so you would chunk them together and treat them as one package. And the same thing would also work if you have two children that have higher fee rates. So we would sort of get um, the ability for descendants to pay for ancestors rather than just children paying for a single parent to reprioritize. Um, the the cool thing about this approach is it would make it way simpler to build blocks and faster. It would also make uh, displacement out of the mempool uh, symmetric to, um, uh, sorry, when, when you, for example, when the mempool is full and we try to evict stuff, uh, we would know exactly what the last transactions are that we would be dropping from uh, that we need to drop from the mempool because they would be the last thing that we'd mine ever. And that becomes symmetrical. Previously, it was easy for us to tell what the best thing is, what the, the transactions are that we would mine into a block first, but eviction was complicated and eviction becomes a lot easier. So um, this is a little bit more on the research side still. There's a lot of um, exploration on what the algorithms would be for this and how it exactly would work. There's uh, an issue in Bitcoin Core so far, but no um, implementation. So this is on a long timeline, but it would make a lot of things way easier uh, surrounding uh, faster block building and more correct blocks in the sense of maximizing the fees collected by miners and generally faster and cleaner eviction. Uh, yeah, did I cover that completely, Dory? Am I missing something? I think so, yeah. And we talked about this before. I mean, I think you went into more detail this time, so maybe there's no need to link a past one. But newsletter, let me see, I think it was 251. We also talked about this. Yeah. Um, so should I continue off of the... Yeah, I think the transactions, right? Sure, yeah. Um, so as as Marge mentioned, it's, it's a bit long-term. Um, I think if we were to wait for that to be done, we might be waiting a little bit of time. Um, and it also doesn't quite solve kind of the rule three for like absolute fees pinning problem that I just mentioned right before this. Um, and that kind of, I think the general, like two kind of very general insights or takeaways that I would say for the past year of discussions about RBF. One is like our limits are not, they're too permissive and they're not very effective at controlling 
what we want to control. Um, and the other one is perhaps different use cases require different kinds of package limits. Um, so for example, you can imagine kind of a batched withdrawal from a exchange sending to a lot of different customers. Um, it would be kind of unfair if only like one of them got to spend their output from that unconfirmed transaction. Um, so it, it does make sense. I, you can definitely say there are there are times where it makes sense to have multiple like descendants allowed from an unconfirmed transaction. But in this case, we're kind of hurt by that because there's so much room for one of the uh, participants of the uh, channel to attach a bunch of stuff to this commitment transaction where really the only use case, the only like use case that we care about is being able to is being able to fee bump that transaction. Um, and so V3 is kind of this like dead simple like <laughs> policy where you you could opt in to a more restrictive set of package limits. And those limits are you get one unconfirmed parent and one unconfirmed child. And that's it. Um, you have a cluster size two, essentially. And that child is only allowed to be a thousand virtual bytes. Um, and so that kind of, it limits the cost of replacement, essentially, right? Because if you want a commitment transaction to confirm and, you know, your fee estimator says that it needs to be, let's say, 50 sats per V-byte to make it into the next block or next two blocks or something, um, then you can, like, just calculate, okay, maximum, like, the maximum cost of replacement is going to be, you know, that fee plus up to 1,000 times, uh, 1,000 virtual bytes times this fee rate, you know, to bring that to that. Um, and, and that's going to be much better than, if, for example, the child could be potentially 100,000 virtual bytes. Um, and so the, the idea here is to kind of limit the, Greg calls this economical damage that your counterparty could do to you um, by, by kind of abusing the descendant limit uh, looseness. Merch has his hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to reiterate and sort of uh, describe it from a different angle. Essentially, by limiting, you you know what use case you have with commitment transaction. You just want to enable someone to bump it. And mm -hmm. by limiting yourself to always having only this cluster of two transactions, you get rid of the options of having additional parent transactions that have a high weight that might bog down the transaction. You limit yourself from having additional children that might increase the package size and make a RBF uh, really expensive. And uh, really, it's in the interest of both parties to delimit themselves because it just makes it dead simple and obvious how much cost there might be eventually to to bump the commitment. That's all. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I mentioned that this is cluster size two because you can essentially apply some, like you get some of the benefits of the cluster mempool stuff. Like you get to. Um, you can calculate what a mining score is of a cluster to like cluster size two cluster um, without having, you know, the entire restructuring of the mempool simply because there's only two transactions. So that's nice. We get kind of a shortcut to some of the things that we want from cluster mempool. It's still, you know, far better to kind of do this larger effort of restructuring it, but it's nice that we have both a short-term solution and a long-term solution, and we need V3 either way. Um, so cool. And then the final 
proposal that's discussed in this post builds on top of V3 and kind of the properties you have with it to uh, to eliminate the requirement of putting value into your anchor output. Um, so I think this comes up in the context of Ellen symmetry, where you're hoping that these kind of update transactions, which represent the state of the channel balance, um, to be able to be chained off of each other. But the problem with anchor outputs and needing value in them is you have to shave off a, like some amount of the funding input into these anchor outputs. So it's, it'll be, I think it's 320 Satoshis or so. Um, and so, it, but if you think about like, okay, let's say we, we want to chain like a hundred update, hopefully not, but like an update transactions off of each other like at every step you have to like shave off 300 something satoshis and so you're like leaking channel balance at each update um which just doesn't it's just a little bit less useful then um so it's it'd be nice to to not have that problem but still be able to fee bump um, and so ephemeral anchors essentially says, okay, let's like add a kind of almost like a carve out rule where if you have to be, you have a V3 transaction, it has exactly zero fees on it. And it has this anchor shaped output, um, that output gets to be zero. It gets to be below the dust threshold. It can be, it doesn't need to be, but it can be, um, and the idea there is that this anchor output will be spent immediately by a fee bumping child, and it will never actually make it to a UTXO set. Um, so, like, it's zero fees, so you got to bump it. Um, and this transaction is only allowed to have one child because it's V3. And that child is not allowed to have any other parents, so it can't be bumping anything else. Um, and so this output quote-unquote, has to be spent. Now, of course, it's not consensus enforced, but it is, like, per, like it's just incentive incompatible for this just to not happen, right? And, and so in that sense, the anchor output is ephemeral, hence the name ephemeral anchors, which I think is a very cool name as well. I think it's very, very nice sounding. Um, and so that kind of allowed... Oh, Merch, has, you have your hand up? Uh, if you want me to, I, I would jump in a little bit if if that's fine. Yeah, fine. Um, so, uh, as we heard earlier, the current anchor output proposal that is uh, already live on the network requires one anchor for each side. And the ephemeral anchors, especially since they are forced to be spent because the parent has zero fees, so it wouldn't even make it into the mempool unless there is a child that bumps it. Um, it, we can use a, a true output here. So the output is tiny. There's an amount and like one byte, just true, And the input of that is also tiny because it can be empty. The input script is completely empty. So you sort of get the benefits of the anchor output but you don't have you have the minimum possible extra data to link those two transactions but you can uh, 
decouple the fee paying from the commitment transaction. And because it's a true output, either party can use the anchor output. So you don't need two anymore. And the mechanism for how the second one gets cleaned up after the transaction is there. And um, since we would use the V3 transactions and we can only have a single child, you don't have to worry about any of the other outputs getting spent and pinning attacks or um, like larger RBF uh, packages that you need to, to replace because something gets attached. You, the only way to spend it uh, for it to be policy um valid would be to to attach to this ephemeral anchor with altogether an overhead of 52 bytes or so uh 50 50 bytes and yeah so that's it's really really cool anyway sorry <laughs> yeah i mean i was i was at the end really um it's pretty exciting i think it'll take a few years to build all of it oh sorry i shouldn't say that it'll take a short amount of time we're working really hard to get everything done. Hopefully we'll have it soon, TM. Um, so it's, yeah, it's cool. It's I sent this to my mom because I was really excited and wanted her to know about what we're working on. <laughs> we have one of the protocols that consumes some of these potential uh, transaction really network improvements here. I see TBAST is giving thumbs up and clapping and a hundred T-Bath, what are, what are your, what's your take? Do you have anything to add to, to what Gloria and Merch have outlined in terms of uh, improvements on the policy front? Yeah, I, ju I just want to highlight that this is, this is amazing work. This is really useful. We are gonna, this is going to simplify lightning and any layer two protocol by an incredible margin. So the, this is very, very important work for any protocol that builds on top of Bitcoin. And I'm really happy that we, we've been able to find the solutions that only require policy changes and require a lot of work for sure. But Gloria has been amazing working on that one for, for so long and getting things merged and accepted and making sure that the discussion was continuously moving forward in the right direction. So yeah, I'm really happy to see all of this making progress and I just can't wait to be able to use it in Lightning. Gloria, uh, do you want to tease our next and final post in the series for next week? Mm, it's going to be a wrap up. Um, it's been a long, long journey. It's, I'm very proud of all of the work that we've done. Merch and I have been spending lots of time on these posts. Um, but yeah, next next week will be a concluding wrap-up post. Excellent. Moving on in the newsletter, we have Bitcoin Core PR Review Club segment, which is a monthly segment highlighting a particularly interesting Bitcoin Core PR that was re reviewed at the weekly PR Review Club meeting. And this month's coverage is a peer-to-peer -peer PR called Stop Relaying Non-Mempool Transactions. And we are fortunate enough to have Martin here who hosted this PR review club, which covered Bitcoin Core 27.625 from Marco. Martin, do you want to introduce yourself and then we can jump into this PR? Sure. Can you understand me? Yep. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm Martin. I uh, work at Chaincode uh, Labs, uh, mostly on peer-to-peer, -peer, but also other uh, aspects on Bitcoin Core. Yeah, and I uh, was hosting this PR review club about this PR. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, maybe it would make sense for you to take the lead on um, maybe summarizing some of the background be behind this PR, and then we can get into some of the details. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's this is all about removal, removal of this so-called map, map relay. And uh, this is uh, what, what I find, find really interesting about this is that this is a very old thing. It uh, was already present in the first uh, GitHub commit. So it's really a Satoshi thing. And uh, back in the old times, it was basically the only way that we, that, uh, we would uh, relate transactions to others. So, I mean, if someone asks us for a transaction, then we need to get it from somewhere. And uh, what we do now is we get it from, mostly from the mempool. But back in the time, we didn't do this. We just uh, saved all transactions that we relate to someone for like 15 minutes. And during this time, we would also like, uh, if someone else asks us for this transaction, we would get it from there and send it to them. But yeah, that was uh, the, the the ancient behavior, I would say. And uh, then at some point, uh, this was made a little bit, uh, yeah, it wasn't needed that much anymore because we'd at some point we'd uh, start uh, like fetching the transaction from the mempool directly. So uh, in that case, uh, yeah, the question is, why do we still have it? Why do we still need this map relay, which continued to exist? like? In, besides the mempool. And the reason for that were like several uh, strange corner cases in which uh, transaction uh, that used to be in the mempool but isn't in the mempool anymore. But for some reason, we would still want to uh, uh, relay it to our peers. And uh, yeah, that's why the map relay basically uh, still existed until 2023. But uh, like I would say like one by one, all these uh, corner cases uh, why we could still, uh, we would still need this map uh, were fixed in other PRs. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, now uh, I think we are finally in a place uh, or we are in a place uh, where we can finally get rid of this map because it's kind of... Uh, not necessary to uh, to have this this additional uh, data structure and uh, just getting rid of it would make uh, make it easier to to reason about uh, transaction relay and also save some memory. So this data structure, in the way that it was originally um, created, was has been removed. But it, as part of this PR, there there was a I guess a smaller, more bounded memory data structure that was added to handle. A, a remaining use case for relaying non-mempool transactions. Is that right? That's that's exactly true. Uh, so there was like the PR. It goes like uh, it, it tries to like list all of the cases where we might still uh, use it. And the one case that uh, we thought we might still want to have this transaction is is if transaction leave the mempool because they were included in a block. In that case, uh, yeah, they are no longer the mempool, and we wouldn't relay them anymore just from the map relay but if we uh, remove that too we wouldn't be able to relay them anymore at all so and uh, that would have some uh, negative consequences on a compact block relay because uh, in that case some of our peers uh, who are just about to ask us for this transaction and uh, 
they don't know they they haven't received the new block yet so uh in order to be able to serve those peers we uh we still uh keep all of those transactions that were included in the most recent block and keep them in a map like in place of of uh, the map relay but it's important to note that this is a much uh, smaller uh, scope for the map for the new map because uh, uh the, uh, these transactions, like we save them anyway, because we want to, like we store the last block, uh, the last, the newest block, we store it anyway in memory so that we can uh, send it to our peers faster. So uh, basically, all this needs is all the overhead this introduces is a couple of pointer to the transaction in this block that we have in memory anyway. So uh, yeah. The, we, this is basically, uh, we have a new map or new true data structure that is uh, a replacement for map relay, but it's much uh, smaller and uh, much more bounded in scope. If I'm understanding the, the use of this new structure correctly, if I'm running a node and I tell a peer about it, that, that I'm aware of a transaction and they say, hey, give me that transaction, and before they ask for it from me, I've actually received a block with that transaction in it, and, and thus that, that transaction has been removed from my mempool. There are advantages to still providing that transaction to that peer, even though, it's, even though the transaction for me has been cleared from the mempool because it's in a block. And the advantages of that is if I provide them with that transaction, when the block that I just got eventually gets to that peer, compact block relay uh, would benefit that peer because they would already then have that transaction. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's basically a timing issue uh, because, uh, I mean, if that peer was just about to ask us from us and we got the block and then we can't uh, send it to them anymore, that would uh, add a little bit of overhead. And uh, But uh, if uh, we still have it, we can just send it to them. I mean, uh, otherwise, there I mean, the transactions are also uh, included in the compact block. So, so let's imagine we don't have this transaction anymore in the map relay, and uh, they could still ask, they could still get get it from us with a compact block. But this would possibly require another uh, round trip and uh, make compact block relay a little bit slower. And uh, so, uh, I think just to be on the safe side in in the, in the event of some strange timing issues, we still uh, have this. And the good thing is that it's very cheap to have. So because the transactions are saved anyway, so we just need to have a, a pointer to these transactions, basically. So we have these shared pointers for transactions. That means that uh, the actual transaction data is saved only in one place. And uh, But there are multiple pointers that share, basically, the ownership over this transaction. And... Uh, the, the transaction will only get deleted after the last pointer uh, is uh, is removed, basically. So, uh, yeah, I think it's basically like uh, like a mechanism just in case in some timing issues to still have it. But uh, I mean, I was arguing in the PR review club that maybe it wasn't even wouldn't even be necessary to have this uh, this replacement structure. But uh, yeah, we have it, and I think it's good. Gloria, did you have any comments on this PR or the PR Review Club discussion? Uh, it's one of those things to get rid of. It's great to get rid of Map Relay. Excellent. Martin, any, any final thoughts before we move on? Uh, not, not really, no. 
All right. Well, thanks for walking us through that PR. And folks, if you're interested, you can see the quest- some of the questions and answers from the PR Review Club in the newsletter. And you can also link to the full transcript of that PR Review Club meeting that was hosted by Martin. Thanks for joining us, Martin. You're welcome to stay on. Thanks for having me. We have one release that we covered in the newsletter this week, which is LND 0.16.4 beta, which is a maintenance release and it fixes a memory leak that may affect some users. We actually had been covering a series of of these related um, issues. I think 0.16.3, which was the release before this, was a fix to optimize the mempool management feature that that, um, LND had just added because it was using too much CPU, which was causing issues. And it seems that that optimization that was put in place to minimize the CPU issue is now causing a um, using too much RAM issue. Merch, have you been following along with these? Did I get that right? I have not been following along. I, I still think we need to get some lightning people on this podcast every week. <laughs> we have one notable code change this week, which is to Bitcoin Core, Bitcoin Core 27869. Bitcoin Core will now give a deprecation warning when loading a legacy wallet. So the wallet will still load, the legacy wallet will still load. There's just a new warning message that when you load such a legacy wallet, that support for creating or opening such wallets will be removed in the future. And also notes that the user should use the Migrate Wallet RPC to transition their wallet to a descriptor wallet. Merch? Yeah, I was going to say, Mike, what's a legacy wallet? Oh, the, the, the roles are reversed. Uh, so, uh, there's legacy, there's actually four types of wallets, right? Uh, there's the, there's legacy, uh, Berkeley DB, there's descriptor Berkeley DB, legacy SQLite and descriptor SQLite. And I think that the goal, uh, of the project that HL is working on is removing support for legacy Berkeley DB, descriptor Berkeley DB and legacy SQLite leaving just uh, descriptor SQLite. So um, descriptors, I think we've gone over a few times in the podcast, but essentially is a uh, the new version of how to keep your wallet data using these output script descriptors, um, as opposed to having a whole bag of, of keys and addresses. And so there's this long-term issue, um, project issue that HL has this roadmap for how to go about um, sunsetting support for not only legacy wallets, but Berkeley DB as well. I, I believe that those are two of the goals of, of the project. And so this is just one step in that um, series of multi-year related issues to, to phase out that support. I have nothing to add. That's uh, exactly right. <laughs> if you're curious, I, I think it's uh, useful context if you click into bitcoin core 2160 this um, tracking issue um, it helps give you perspective on prs like the one we just covered and in its context in a broader um, effort within the bitcoin core project to achieve something and i know gloria has 
some similar tracking issues with some of the work that she's doing. I, I find it helpful as a consumer of this information to put things in perspective using those tracking issues. So thanks for putting those together so we have an idea of where we're going. Actually, let me jump in a little bit here. Um, people often ask why it takes so long for a Bitcoin core to do stuff. Essentially, the idea is that you're fixing an airplane while it's in flight and nobody is allowed to lose any funds or lose capability of doing any of the things that they ever were able to do before. So any of the wallets ever created with Bitcoin Core since the release in 2009 still need to be able to be parsed by Bitcoin Core even today. And even when we uh, remove support for um, loading the wallets and using them directly, we will always have to maintain the ability to transfer them to a new format that we can read. So we will always have a translator that is able to import the old wallets and create a current descriptive wallet from them. So you will always be able to spend any old Bitcoin Core wallet in, in or use and recover funds from any old Bitcoin Core wallet in uh, new Bitcoin Core. So we've we've had this Berkeley DB for well ever since Bitcoin Core existed, and it's it has various issues. I think it's basically unmaintained and old. And we're we're moving just to something that is newer, lighter, better maintained, which is SQ Lite. And then of course uh, I think we've talked a lot about descriptors. The descriptive format is a much more um, explicit way of referring to the entire body of script pub keys that a wallet consists of. And it, it's the way forward how I think wallet exchange formats and multi-sig and all sorts of, of more complex wallets are going to express their backups in the future and also probably their wallet format. So um, if you look at 2160, uh, that Mike just referenced. It is a project that has started in 2020, and it's had some changes to the Bitcoin Core in every release since ODA 21, and it's scheduled out to 28.0 to actually finally remove all the parts. And being able to juggle all these pieces and keep everything working at every point in time is what makes this fairly complex. If you're making a commercial product where you can just say, well, this version is no longer supported, you have to upgrade. and don't really need to to cater to any users that have old versions anymore that's way easier but uh, we we have higher standards we we want to make sure that nobody ever loses funds from just having an old version any announcements before we wrap up i'm going to be at tabconf you should also come to tabconf we'll have a great conference do you think we could record a live optic recap session there I think we might, yeah. You're going to be there, too? Oh, well, now that you're going, maybe I will go. Cool. Thanks. That's good. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you to Martin, T-Bast, Gloria, and my co-host, Merch, and, and everybody who um, listened to the podcast. We'll see you next week when we recap newsletter number 260. Thanks for having me. Thank you. See you guys. Cheers. Cheers. See you.